Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 36 through the end of the book. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate before them. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands. He blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray together. You can be seated. We'll open our time in Luke 24 in prayer. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for what it tells us of your plan of redemption, what it tells us of you and of your son. We thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ, who has come indeed for our sins and indeed to save us. Uh, from our wretched state. We ask, O Lord, that you would bless us as we reflect upon these last moments of his earthly ministry. Uh, Would it indeed profit us greatly? We pray this all in your holy name and by your spirit, pleading his power in this hour. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, perhaps the question has occurred to you at some point in your Christian walk, What is Jesus doing now? might be a question that's been put to you by a child or by someone who's seeking to understand the faith for the first time. It's a simple question, and I'm sure each of you would have some answer to it. Uh, Perhaps you would appeal to the creed. He ascended into heaven. That's where he is now, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. But what does this mean? Is there more that we could say? Is there more that we could say actually on an Ascension Sunday? Uh, the church broadly, those that observe this thing called the church calendar, uh, throughout the world is celebrating this day as Ascension Sunday, a, a day that celebrates this event that's described in Luke 24. And it's worthy of our attention, of our question. What can we say about Jesus' ascension? Why it is that he has left? Is it simply a convenient truth? Is it just simply that we know that Jesus is not subject to death and he's also not here? And so, well, he's ascended as an explanation of how those two things could be 
true. I think sometimes we view Jesus' ascension in this way, almost as some sort of vestigial organ of our theology. If you know what a vestigial organ is, your appendix is a vestigial organ. We're not quite sure why it's there, uh, what purpose it functions, but it's there, and so we just sort of tag it on. It's there in our creed, so we confess it. But I think there's actually much more that we could say. I really want to challenge that sort of thinking by reflecting with you that the Bible has much to say about what's happening in Luke 24. What's going on when Jesus ascends into heaven? In fact, the Bible has much to say about the present position and purpose that Christ now has in that ascended estate that he is now in. It indeed is not a dull or heady question. Why is it that Christ has ascended? It's actually really, really important. And if you doubt me on that, just listen to the way that the great Puritan John Flavel, or Flavel, however you say his name, Flavel writes, If Christ had not ascended, you could not enter into heaven when you die. Did you catch that? If Christ had not ascended, you could not enter into heaven when you die. So what is it that Flavel saw? It was so important about Christ's ascension to the right hand of the Father. Well, I want to consider this question with you over the next few minutes. And I want to do so in three parts. And they're actually alliterative, which is not something I typically like to do, I will say, but it is very convenient when it comes together in this way. These three parts, I want to first consider the place, then I want to consider the person, and then thirdly, I want to consider the purpose of the ascension. The place, the person, and the purpose. And you can consider these three parts as moving from the the very simplest of reasons to the very most glorious of reasons in some ways. The place, the person, and the purpose. Well, where's the place where Christ has gone? Well, in verse 49 of our passage in Luke 24, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to send them something, a power from, as he says, on high. Wherever we can surmise Jesus is going, it will be a lofty place as he's about to leave his disciples He's kind of going to send them something from on high. And in verse 51, Luke tells us that Jesus parted from them and was carried up into heaven. If all we had were these two little descriptions of what Jesus is doing that Luke 24 had offered us, we actually wouldn't have very much. Luke is not really expositing what's going on here in a more expansive way, but The rest of Scripture actually makes very clear what's going on here, particularly the psalm that we read this morning, Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh speaking to the Davidic king, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus makes it very clear in his ministry. That he is going where Psalm 110.1 is saying that he is going, to the right hand of the Father. It's actually very much on the mind of Christ in the late moments of his ministry. So, for instance, in Matthew, Matthew chapter 26, when he is before the, the, tribute, uh, the, the leaders, Pilate and others, as he's being tried before his death, he refers to actually Psalm 110 verse 1 in some measure when he says in his only answer he gives to them, During his trial, he says, But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. 
seated at the right hand of power. He had this destination on his mind, for instance, in John chapter 20, when he's resurrected. He's come back from the dead and he encounters Mary Magdalene in the garden there. And he tells Mary not to cling to him. And he gives her a reason why she should not cling to him. He says, do not cling to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father. When he does ascend, here in Luke 24, from this point onward in the New Testament, it's continually referred to him that he is ascended. He has gone on to that place. So, for instance, Stephen, the martyr Stephen in Acts chapter 7, when he's about to die, he has a vision right before he dies, and he sees something, a heavenly scene. He sees Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. It's the way the exalted Christ is described. Luke 24 is marking the moment that Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. But what is this right hand of the Father? What is this place to which Jesus has gone? Well, once again, the Scriptures, the rest of them, help us. They help interpret what's going on here. The Old Testament actually has much to say about the right hand of God. Listen to the way Moses speaks of God's right hand in Exodus 15, verse 2. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, scatters the enemy. Listen to the psalmist. Psalmist, Psalm 89, verse 13. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. The right hand of the Father represents all of God's power and authority. All of God's power and authority given to Christ. This is the way that Jesus speaks of it. For instance, in the parallel account at the end of the book of Matthew, when he is about to also descend in that moment, and he gives a charge to his disciples, and in Matthew 28, 18, he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I've been given all authority in heaven and earth. The Apostle Peter speaks similarly. 1 Peter 3, 22, Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Peter says he's gone to the right hand and he has all power. Everything's been subjected to him. Hebrews 1, verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Why must Jesus ascend? Just to take to himself all power in heaven and on earth. In other words, to rule. That's why Jesus ascends into the heavenly courts, to rule. It's a well-understood fact, I think, for all of us that kings and rulers, they don't just rule from anywhere, do they? When I was a kid, we used to play games like King of the Hill. Kids play those sorts of games. King of the Rock Pile. We had a giant rock pile in our backyard at one point, and why do you not play, why do you play king of the hill versus king of the ditch? 
Because kings don't dwell in ditches. Kings dwell in high and lifted up places. There's a reason that nations, for instance, have capital cities. And then within those capital cities, they have residences, the White House. Or if you're a subject of the crown like me, Buckingham Palace. Or number 10, Downing Street, or whatever you have it. Rulers have command centers, places from which they must command their authority. And the only place that Jesus can command the authority that he now possesses, having accomplished his work and gone to the right hand of the Father, is the very throne room of heaven. This is why in John chapter 18, Jesus says to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. He's not interested in Pilate's office immediately. He's interested in a greater office that awaits him in heaven. If Christ were to refuse to ascend, it would be a sort of abdication, actually. An abdication of what God had given him to do, which was to rule all of it. To rule all of it, heaven and earth. To take possession of the highest office in all existence. Not only the earthly realm, the heavenly too. To be over every principality and power, every angel of heaven that if you were to see it, you would be terrified by its raw power. And Jesus sits on a throne commanding it all the right hand of the Father. This is the place where he has gone. But secondly, I want to look at the person who ascends. Who has gone to the Father? Well, obviously, this seems very obvious to us. The person who ascends is the person of Christ. And of course, that's true. But I want to to unpack what that means because actually it gets a little complicated with Christ because Christ is one person In two natures. We can actually speak of this ascension in terms of each of those natures. We actually kind of have to speak of that. So bear with me a little bit. I think we have to do some momentary heavy lifting, theologically speaking, to understand this. But we can understand it in two ways, according to these two natures. So according to Christ's divine nature. What's going on in Luke 24? With Christ's divine nature and his ascent to the right hand of the Father. Well, in one sense, nothing. We have to say that because the person of Christ being fully God and sharing fully in the divine nature and having all power and authority as the second person of the Trinity, he didn't gain in power on that day in Luke 24. He didn't grow in power. He was always the most high God. We can say that on Luke 24, his power was manifest for us. We see him for who he is. It's shown forth, it's shone forth for man to behold that power of his divine nature. But in terms of his power, nothing really changes. It's with respect to his human nature that something radical changes. See, Christ in his human nature is brought up into heaven. Luke actually makes this emphasis very clear in Luke 24. The human, humanity of Christ going into heaven. Listen to the way he draws this out in verse 
38, why are you troubled, Jesus says, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. In case they distrust him, he even goes a little bit farther than this. In verse 24, it says that they gave a piece of broiled fish and he ate it. He ate food. His digestive system was intact. It was a man. The God-man, yes, but a man that went up to the highest courts in known existence. Our human nature went up. It went up. It was exalted. Exalted to the right hand of God himself. This is a great mystery. John Owen refers to this mystery, this, what he calls the advancement of Jesus' human nature. And he admits to just utter amazement that a man would go to sit at the right hand of the Father. But this is, I think, one of the more marvelous things that happens in Luke chapter 24. Our human nature goes to the highest throne of the universe. As Paul says in Ephesians 1.21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, our human nature goes there and occupies that throne. The God-man, he's lifted up that humanity to a place of incomparable glory. As we step back, consider this in light of the full biblical scope. We've touched on this already today in Sunday school, but we begin to see this is the way that God actually always intended for things to be. This is the way that he intended things to be with Adam, actually. That Adam would rule, rule at God's direction, be give dominion over all the earth, Adam was to rule. It's a privilege lost by Adam in sin. It's a privilege that Christ gains. To rule at the right hand of the Father. I said it in Sunday school. I'll say it again. Good Calvinists gain a good reputation for being right on sin. We believe in the sinful humanity of God. Of the sinful Humanity that we obtain. Sorry, I just almost said a very blasphemous heresy off this pulpit. I take it back. I recant immediately. The sinful humanity that we possess, we believe in it. It's right. It's true. But in Christ, that sinless humanity, the full picture of what was intended for us, goes forth into the heavenly courts. That is true teaching. Our doctrine of sin. It's true teaching about what man is at his lowest. But our doctrine of Christ's ascension teaches what, us what, God, what man is, as God intended him to be. To rule at the right hand of the Father. He intended great things for Adam's, things that we squandered, we do squander in our sin, but things that Christ has obtained. It's a remarkable thing. 
I think it's something that ought to lead us to that, that strange mixture of grief and compassion. When we encounter downtown areas like Portland, it's been about a decade since I would, well, five years, half a decade since I've been in Portland and the drive in through Portland, and you see all these manifestations of human beings who are just dying in slow motion. People who have just gone out of their minds on drugs, they're just killing themselves on substance abuse in there. Their flesh is just rotting. I mean, you, you see the visible marks of their death. And they stink. And it's repulsive to us. We're rightly repulsed by the picture of that humanity on that sidewalk. But before we are too repulsed, we need to remember that the one that sits at the right hand of God shares something with that person. Now, yes, the gulf of sin is very, very wide. It's very broad between Christ's sinless humanity and that sinful humanity. But the same human nature, the same human desires, uncorrupted by sin, are represented in the throne room of grace right now and the sidewalks of Portland. The same human body, the same human digestive system, the same emotions... Christ shares that with us presently from the right hand of the Father. This should fill us with great sadness and holy anger towards sin. Because brothers and sisters, this is what sin has robbed from you. It's robbed glory from you. It's destroyed you and corrupted you and robbed you of a high privilege a privilege that belonged to us in Adam and is only gained in Christ. So to return to the question, why must Christ ascend? It's because in him, God intends to restore something to us. To restore what sin has stolen from us. So this leads us to our third and final point. The purpose of Christ's ascension. Preeminent purpose of Christ's ascension is to exalt God. All things exist to exalt God and to glorify Him. But there's a, as I unpack the purpose of Christ's ascension, I think there is a purpose that is so very important for you and me. And it's this Christ ascends to the right hand of the Father in order to shower upon us every blessing from the heavenly. Places. Every blessing and benefit that he now enjoys. This is a remarkable thing. I mentioned the game King of the Hill or King of the Mountain earlier. And as I remember that game playing it when I was younger, if you'd wrestled your way to the top, the whole point was that you were there and no one else was. Right? That's how that human game worked. You had to kick everyone else off. There was no, you know, there was one King of the Hill. It's very fascinating. When Christ ascends to the right hand of the Father, it's in order to actually give us every privilege that he enjoys. Every privilege that he enjoys. So, for instance, we could unpack the privileges that Christ enjoys. He's given power, we're told in the scriptures. What does he immediately turn around and do? 
He gives the power of the Holy Spirit. He says this, verse 49 of Luke 24, Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And when the Spirit comes, the way that the New Testament reflects on it is in this same sense of having divine power given to us. Power that Christ gains and we are given. So Romans 8, verse 11 says that the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you. You have power, the same power, in fact, that raised Jesus from the dead, that gave him victory over sin, that destroyed death. It belongs to you. It's amazing. You enjoy it, you who are in Christ. Christ is given standing in the Holy of Holies, and he gives us standing in the Holy of Holies. I already pointed out, or maybe I didn't, I did. But the posture of Jesus, Jesus in Luke 24, what is he doing? How is he standing when he's taken up into heaven? Like this, right? Arms outstretched. Luke is being very conscious to give us a picture of a new Aaron, a new priest, a high priest, arms outstretched before the Holy of Holies, giving every blessing of that inner court to the people of God. So Psalm 110 verse 4 speaks of the exalted Christ in these terms. Is that priest, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Christ is glorified to the right hand of the Father so that he can intercede as a priest on our behalf. This is actually a major theme of an entire book of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 9, 24, Christ has entered not only into, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear before the presence of God on our behalf. Hebrews 6, 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. It's a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Brothers and sisters, if Christ doesn't ascend, if he doesn't ascend, there is no intercession in heaven on your behalf. And as a result of that, there is no way for you to go into heaven. That's what Flavel is saying when he says, if Christ does not ascend, you would not go into heaven when you die. There is no present reason that we would be admitted into the heavenly courts. Listen to the way another Puritan, Stephen Charnock, comments on it. Christ's death, he says, was the payment. His resurrection, the acquittal. But his glory, that's another word Charnock uses for his ascension, is the fullest testimony that God can give that he is satisfied. He remains so. If Christ does not ascend, you have no intercession in the heavenly courts. Thirdly, Christ is given privilege, the right hand of the Father, and the mere mystery of the Scriptures is that he gives us that same privilege. He goes to the right hand of the Father. And the scriptures are clear that you and I go to the right hand of the Father. Now that Christ has come 
and established his work, we actually share in that same destiny. Now, lest you think I'm pulling a fast one on you, I'm aiming too high, consider what Paul says about us. In Ephesians 2, verse 6, Paul says, He has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Consider what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, he says, we will also reign with him. Listen to what John says in Revelation 3.21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Do you see what is contained in our gospel, the glories that Christ has prepared and even now we have and possess because he has gone forward as our forerunner on our behalf so that we might join him, join him in that same privilege. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Paul says, Every spiritual blessing. This is one of the things that I just think sets apart our God, sets apart our gospel. If we were to write a script for our own personal man-made human religion, it's been done before, it would be entirely ordinary. It is entirely ordinary for us to expect that God, if we were trying to imagine a God, well, that God would come and subdue humanity. And conquer us. Certainly part of what God does, he subdues us to himself. But if that's the only thing we said about our God, we would have a God who is no different than Allah. The word Islam actually means to submit. And the whole point of Islam is that the whole world will merely submit to their God. He will rule them. They will be his slaves and submit. But your God, your God, you will reign with him. You do reign with him. He has raised you into the heavenly places where you will go to join him in glory. It's a remarkable thing. It's a remarkable thing. We reign with Christ. We reign with him. It's almost too remarkable a thing, I think. The royal family has been in the news a lot recently. I hear there was quite a party in England in the last few weeks. It's always fascinating to me as a subject of the crown. Once again, just to remind you, I'm Canadian. It's always fascinating when I see footage of the history of the royal family, and you, you see a little Harry, or we, uh, let's, let's forget him, a little William, and whatever other royals there are. I don't actually even know any other, other children. But the little children, you see the footage that the paparazzi have gained of them just playing together. I sort of think, you know, when you see a little child... And they're squabbling over a toy. It's a picture of what we are, a little bit. 
That young William, he has no idea. That little two-year-old, he has no idea. The titles, the lands, what he stands to inherit. All he wants is that toy his brother has. He doesn't even know what he possesses because he can't even comprehend it at that point. We are, like C.S. Lewis, so often those who make mud pies in the ditch forgoing a trip to the ocean. Forgoing a trip to the ocean of the glories, what God has preserved and made it possible and actually given to you in Christ Jesus. When he ascended into heaven with the promise that you would join him. That is where you and I are going. Brothers and sisters, this is a remarkable thing. We possess, that we possess in Christ. We possess heaven itself. Because Jesus Christ died, he resurrected, and he ascended into the heavenly places. So all of it can belong to you. Amen. Father, we are thankful for a gift that so surpasses any thanks that we could give for what it is that you have purposed in your salvation, what it is that you have accomplished in Jesus Christ when he went before us as our forerunner to assure that the way to heaven is open, that we have standing and the holy of holies, indeed, that we might know fully that we who are in him and joined to him have that same standing that we indeed will sit together with him on his throne and rule with him. Lord, fill us with a knowledge of this by faith that we might worship truly and rightly and rejoice at the good thing you have done when you, O Lord, ascended, sat down at the right hand of the Father. We pray all this in your holy name. Amen.